0: We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Pride of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, Gary Cooper, and the Making of a Classic. The publisher, Hachette Books. The author, Richard Sandemir. Please join me as we welcome Richard Sandemir to the clubhouse. Very nice. (laughs) nice. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. And I think uh, the best way to get us going, uh, which is we, we do start this way quite often, but if you could just let us know how this book project came to be.
1: Well, about 10 or 12 years ago, I don't know exactly why I started getting obsessed with the Cooper speech, uh, which naturally creates an obsession with the actual speech by Lou Gehrig. And I thought if I could write an article (laughs) about the genesis of the speech and how it became the climax of the movie, that would be good. But then that just expanded, then my obsession expanded, and I thought, well, it's a really good movie. I'd like to do a book about it. It took a few stops and starts, mainly stops, before I got a contract two years ago with Hachette. And the contract allowed me entree into the Samuel Goldwyn archive at the, at the Motion Picture Library in Beverly Hills, uh, where I couldn't have done the book without, without what I found there. Scripts from start to finish, letters, correspondence, contracts, and for me, the biggest find there were, was, were the notes taken of the interviews that Eleanor Garrick gave to the first writer, Paul Gallico, who years later would be famous from writing The Poseidon Adventure, but in 1941, he was the recently uh, recent sports editor and sports columnist for the Daily News who had very famously left sports and he Samuel Golden brought him back. and. He and Eleanor spent a few weeks together in San Francisco. She's poured her heart out about Lou and herself and, uh, and her mother-in-law. And the, the portrait of the mother-in-law was a lot harsher, harsher in, in Eleanor's original words than we saw in the movie. It had to be tempered in order for the movie to be inspiring and be a love story. You couldn't have that grim, Nasty Woman's character, uh, as Eleanor portrayed it, uh, uh, infiltrate the plot for more than a third or halfway through.
0: So uh, I'm gonna jump a little bit ahead and then we can come Ooh. back, but since you mentioned Samuel Goldwyn, I'd like to go uh, sure. right to him and, and Eleanor, since I guess those are the two people without whom, other than obviously Luke well, Well there'd,
1: there'd be a third person and we can get to him. Okay, okay.
0: Uh, who's that?
1: Uh, Niven Bush.
0: Oh, all right, we'll get to him. Okay. Uh, but as far as uh, Samuel Goldman, Goldwyn, uh, Goldwyn uh, if you could just speak a little bit about him, here's a, a man who seemingly knew nothing about baseball and didn't even like baseball in any way.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, look, he, he was a Polish immigrant born Schmuel Goldfish, uh, <laughs> and he came to America where he went to work in the glove factories of Gloversville, New York, way upstate. And he eventually found his way into the movie business, first looking at the Nickelodeons, and then he got into the business, and he was a famously difficult, imperious uh, guy who got, if he didn't get his way, he'd stop dealing with you. And he had several, uh, he was a partner in several movie companies, including MGM, before he went independent and uh, formed Samuel Goldman Company, which was the studio that, that made Pride of the Yankees. He had made Wuthering Heights, he'd made Stella Dallas, he had made, in the future, he would make the best years of our lives. Uh, and it is almost certain that he never saw a baseball game or knew anything about baseball other than, it's, other than that it's played with 12 bases on the field. And there are all sorts of stories about all the other things he didn't know about baseball. When he was approached by his story editor, Niven Bush Jr., to make a movie on Gehrig. He said, you want, you want to see baseball? Go to a ballpark. Baseball is box office poison. I'm not going to make a movie about a baseball player. Niven Bush, who would towards the end of the filming of *Part of the Act, he's married Theresa Wright, uh, he had an idea. He was a big baseball fan. And he persuaded Goldwyn to sit still in his screening room at the studio and watched the newsreel of Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day, which culminated with Gehrig's speech. And it's quite likely that Goldwyn sat there fidgeting because everything leading up to the speech, much of which I have seen, which is which still exists, the rest, much of the speech is gone. It's marching bands, it's speeches, it's presentation of gifts. Finally, they got to Gehrig, and he was reluctant to speak initially. And, but what Goldwyn saw made him make the movie, because he saw the speech, the lights went up, he was crying. He understood. He was a guy who wanted to make movies for the masses, had a golden gut about what worked. He saw the love story. He saw the, the courageous Gehrig dying as he's speaking, his body withering as he's standing there in the heat of July 439. He sees that. They run the film again. Lights go up. He orders his number two guy, Jim Mulvey in New York, to make contact with Eleanor Garrick. That's how the deal was made. Niven Bush, to me, is the most important person in making this movie because not only, but he had he so he, he was bracketed by 12 years of in the past, 1929. Bush is a writer for The New Yorker. He interviews Gehrig for a profile, and he comes away amazingly unimpressed. He basically says, this guy is so dull that he doesn't even deserve fans. Now, 29, Gehrig was a well-established superstar. He'd won the MVP in 27. Beating a, and and I, I may have mistakenly wrote that he beat out Ruth. At that time, if you've won an MVP already, you weren't eligible to be voted on again. So, Gehr- so Gehrig wins the MVP. So 29, he's a great ball player. And Bush is much more impressed with Gehrig's mother. Gehrig's mother, who cooks eels for, for, for her son. And obviously a very dynamic woman. But Gehrig himself, he had one quote about Bush apparently asked him about you know, his dating, who he's dating. And, you know, Did you date this particular woman and take her to the movies? Are you going to get married? And Garrick said something like, well, my wife, my mother makes uh, a home good enough for me. This is four years before he married Eleanor. So there's no evidence that Bush and Garrick had any other encounters in the next 12 years. But by dying, Garrick had dying as he had as a young man of the disease that people didn't understand, he became movie worthy. So Eleanor herself knew baseball pretty well. She was, in reality, a, a, a fan from Chicago a White Sox fan, she had seen Garrick play when he came to Comiskey Park, and throughout the filming of the movie she showed her baseball knowledge because she was sending letters to the screenwriters and to Goldwyn to say, you didn't get this right, you can't have Lou go into the Yankee office and be signed to his contract by Miller Huggins wearing a suit. (laughs) She lost that. (laughs) She said you can't have Garrick, you can't have Lou hit four home runs in a World Series game. She won that. It became. I'm promising this little crippled boy two home runs in a World Series game. Uh, She didn't win a lot of the battles, but she was clearly showing that she she didn't want a Hollywood movie to overly Hollywoodize her husband's life. You could say she batted about two fifty on that.
0: Okay. Say all right. So we. You got into Niven Bush, and we spoke a bit about Eleanor. We'll probably get a little more into her later. But we may as well now get into uh, Gary Cooper. So you have a line. I just want to read the one line in the book, and then you you can take it from there. Uh, For the past 75 years, Gehrig's legacy became inseparable from the pride of the Yankees, which was not a baseball film, but a Gary Cooper movie. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Cooper, if you followed his career, and certainly Goldwyn knew this when he, he, he cast him as Garrick. Cooper specialized in playing men of quiet dignity. Sergeant York, uh, Longfellow Deeds, John Doe, flashing forward in High Noon, Marshal Will Kane. Gar- uh, Cooper's movie persona was so bound up in him not saying much Yep, that's, that's pretty much what the world quoted him as saying until the luckiest man speech. So Cooper knew nothing about playing baseball. He grew up in Montana. He knew how to ride horses. He became a stunt rider in Hollywood before he became a star. And he, uh, in, 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 in three or four formative years as a child, his parents sent him and his brother to go to school in England to become little gentleman. It sort of worked, but it also prevented him from playing baseball with whoever, however many of his friends were playing baseball. Remember, baseball I'm sure was popular in some quarters in Montana, but it hadn't moved west yet. So it's, Major League Baseball stopped in St. Louis at that you know, at that point. So he I don't know how much radio baseball he heard, but he didn't care. And by the time he's cast to play Garrick, his only worry is not really whether he can learn to play baseball, which he did sort of, but that the memory of Lou was so fresh in everybody's minds that how could he compare? How, you know, you can't do any tricks to fool people. He didn't have the athletic skills to play baseball. He was tall and lanky, and Gehrig was brawny and muscular. His abs were so sh- so big and strong that was one of the reasons why when he posed for t- 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 when he posed in Hollywood to play Tarzan, people were saying no 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 your, your legs are too thick you can't you can't do that uh, Tarzan has to be a little uh, muscular but not necessarily like that and I think the, mus- the, the how muscular he was below his waist had something to do with being called biscuit pants but <laughs> nicknames from the 40s and 30s and 40s are much better than <laughs> we have now. So, here is a movie made by a producer who didn't know about baseball and definitely didn't want to make a baseball movie, Gary Cooper, who never played baseball and had a slight interest in had a slight interest in baseball because while I was doing the research I saw an article in a Saber publication that said that Cooper and a bunch of other Hollywood stars, small S stars, and the owner of the Brown Derby, Robert Cobb, Cobb Salad had bought the Hollywood Stars PCL team in nineteen forty. And I called up Cooper's daughter Maria, who was a very good source of information about her father, and I said, Maria, you told me he had no interest in baseball. She said, Well don't believe everything you read. Okay. <laughs> she was just a baby when this happened, so she'd have no reason to know if it's true or not and he, he didn't talk a lot of, he didn't talk a lot at home. So I did some more research because you tell me not to believe what's in the press, I'm gonna keep trying to find out. And I kept seeing article after article that showed they bought the team, this group of Hollywood actors, they bought the team in time to move into the new Gilmore Field in Hollywood. So I called Maria again, and I said, Maria, blah, 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 Gilmore Field. She said, oh, now I know what you're talking about. Now I know why they kept t- my parents kept taking me to games in, at Gilmore Field. Yes, of course, he, he must have owned the piece, but it must have been a very social thing, that he wanted to do this with the other actors. And it probably didn't cost very much to buy a a PCL team in 1940. So that was the extent of his baseball knowledge. Uh, Teresa Wright did not become a baseball fan until she was in her 80s when she was invited back to Yankee Stadium for a um, celebration of July 4, 1939. The cinematographer hadn't shot baseball. Uh, So this Niven Bush guy remains a very, very important person. The director, Sam Wood, was an amateur ball player. So there are numerous pictures of Wood on set or on location showing Cooper how to swing a bat a certain way. There's, if you remember in the spring training sequence that takes place in 1939, where a a pitch that comes very close to him, to Cooper, makes him tumble backwards. I've seen enough pictures of that scene with Sam Wood directing it to say that, you know, Cooper, this is a brushback pitch, and you don't have much strength anymore, so you can't stand up to it. And that's when he tumbles backwards and he's caught by Bill Dickey, who played himself in the movie.
0: And your, your research throughout was, st- was stellar and fascinating. Uh, among uh, the, the, the most fascinating, if you could just speak a little, since you mm-hmm. were just talking about Gary Cooper ha- have never playing baseball. So not only, not only does he have to learn how to play baseball to some degree, right. He has to learn how to look, to, uh, as much as he can, uh, like the greatest first baseman, probably still whoever lived. Uh, Gary Cooper's right-handed. He has to look like this guy who's a lefty. Yes. And if uh, some of that, the, the research I, I found fascinating. If you could just speak a bit sure. about how he had to learn how to look like he could play left-handed and this whole flip uh, okay. aspect.
1: Well. Cooper, having never played baseball, needed a teacher. And his teacher, for the most part, was the former National League batting champion Lefty O'Doul, who at this point was managing the San Francisco Seals. He had mani- he had been the manager for, for, I think, all three DiMaggio brothers. So he was the perfect guy. He was a very good teacher. And he taught him at Cooper's estate in Brentwood. He, I think he traveled up to Sun Valley, where Cooper had a place near his near his friend Ernest Hemingway. And uh, so they have to teach him how to play, bat lefty. Now my theory, because we don't have a whole, we don't have any film to show this happening, uh, my theory is that Cooper didn't have any bad habits to unlearn. So he, he couldn't say to lefty O'Doul, I've been batting right-handed all my life. How am I going to mm-hmm. switch backward? So they spent about six weeks working together. One of the things, and there's a picture of it in the book that, that memorializes this, is uh, Odul understood that Cooper was an outdoorsman. And he said at one point to him, you ever chop down a tree? Yeah. Yep. He gave him an axe. And he said, this is how you, s- you swing a bat. It's not that dissimilar from the axe motion. That developed into, into regular batting lessons fielding lessons and throwing lessons. One of the great things in going through this Goldwyn Archive is looking at some of the releases and proposed releases and publicity plans of the, of the studio. And one of the stories that were, was told and was released to the press was one of the biggest whoppers you're ever gonna find. It said that practicing in the backyard mind you the five or seven acre backyard of the Cooper home (laughs) Cooper unloaded a mighty whack from the left side it went over the house it went across the street it crashed into Tyrone Power's breakfast area and it would have to have been at least the 700 foot shot so uh, but the that wasn't even the best part of the story Cooper being sheepish about this and uh, and ashamed of it, he he was a modest guy. He didn't want to keep breaking the windows of his neighbors. So he goes up the walk, knocks on the door. By the time he actually, by the time the first knock, the maid opens the door. Coop, you've done it again. It's the second time in a week. Can't you just, you know, adjust your stance and hit the ball that way? And she pointed to the house of the name escapes me right now, of Goldwyn's former brother-in-law who pushed him out of a previous studio job. What? This maid must have been reading Variety. Uh, so, uh, so I don't believe he, ha- he hit that ball that well. I do believe that he approached mediocrity. And if you look at the movie, there isn't very much baseball action in there at all. I think I counted up 10 to 12 minutes you very rarely see the ball making contact with his bat. The faraway shots are of Babe Herman, the former Brooklyn Dodgers first baseman. There is a sequence that takes place during the minor league period, 90 seconds worth, where you see what looks like Cooper at first base. It's Babe Herman. How do I know? Not only is he in the studio daily, attendance charts, but he turned his face a little bit like this toward the camera. And if you've ever seen Babe Herman, he has an unmistakable look. You also see Cooper seeming to slide into first base. I don't know if it was Herman, but somebody else did the actual sliding to, to get the dirt up, and then you see Cooper sort of settled in. I don't think Cooper could slide. But there is a moment in there where you see him throwing a little bit. And the telltale sign that this was an instance where he couldn't become a lefty was in ver- two very quick camera cuts. There's a bandage on over here and a bandage over here. It's the same bandage, just on different hands. So that was flipped. And as to the legend of everything else being flipped, that Cooper had failed so miserably at learning how to be a lefty that they, he did everything right-handed, he ran to third base instead of first base, everybody else had their, you know, the name on the front of the uniform, the, the, you know, everybody else had to have that flipped, everybody had to have the buttons flipped, These, this is the placket, that had to be flipped. The best source to refute this was a senior curator at the Baseball Hall of Fame, a guy named Tom Schieber, and he is just riveted on all these aspects of game-used uniforms and everything that flows from that. Even before I started writing the movie, he had published a um, 30-page analysis, frame by frame, and he said it would have had to have required far more work than they would have done back then to achieve verisimilitude. Remember, this is 1942. Actors were not required to be great athletes. You make part of the Yankees now. You'd have to have, You'd you'd need somebody of the caliber of Kevin Costner to play baseball, because fans and movie critics would not tolerate a guy who couldn't credibly play baseball. I think Cooper did well, considering that he'd never played before. But I think one of the, to me, the telltale moment where that showed that he could hit. There's a scene in an arcade at the, at the World's Fair where he had taken Eleanor on their first name, and he's dressed in a tuxedo, and there's no reason to think this was flipped because there's a lot of people around him, there's a lot of stuff around him, and he was connecting. Walt didn't have to go very far, but he, he, he swung about four different times, he, had a, he didn't have a bad swing. But I think also the swinging may have been the, the easiest thing for him to do because he didn't have to you know, unlearn a right-handed swing.
0: And this is just a little uh, tip off to the crowd that we're getting close to the Q&A. But I want to ask one more question. And then I have have plenty of other questions, but I want to give them a chance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since you're talking about filmmaking, uh, there's some really beautiful scenes in the movie. One of them is my personal favorite. I just rewatched the movie with my wife Marcy. She had not seen the movie before. Luckily, I think she slept through this scene, so she didn't see me crying. Uh, but I just want no re- one sleeps through Pride of the Yankees. <laughs> uh, don't take it personally. That's okay. Uh, I didn't make it. <laughs> Nobody sleeps through. She the hasn't book. slept through the book. No. Uh, I just want to re- uh, read something that you wrote, and then have you comment. Uh, Pride of the Yankees shifts from the clinic to the Garricks' home where they are preparing for the day in his honor on July 4th. The scene is the most heartbreaking of the film. Cooper has trouble tying his bow tie. Wright watches him through the slight crack between the bathroom door and its hinges. He struggles with his lost dexterity as he whistles always. In a film that avoids graphically showing Garrick's physical decline, seeing Cooper demonstrate his failure failure to fashion a bow tie, is a significant but subtle sign of his deterioration. Seeing his problem, right appears pained, then looks to cheer him up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm tearing up just just thinking about it. Uh, I've watched that scene, I've seen the movie 75 or 100 times in the last two years, and I I saw it for the first time on a big screen. We did a screening at the Museum of the Moving Image last Saturday, and it is, to me, it's incredibly moving. Uh, There were a number of scenes that, Choke me up. It's the the moment when they're wrestling playfully on the beach in St. Petersburg, which was which was a soundstage with with, with Sam, and um, Walter Brennan interrupts and uh, wants to you know do us do a story about Lou Gehrig, how I beat my wife uh, in wrestling. And Brennan walks away, and she she says to him, Why don't you want uh, Sam? to talk right about our private life, because it's our private life. But we've never had a honeymoon, she says. Every day is like a honeymoon. And it's just, in, in, in a romantic movie where the most romantic kiss is the one that Cooper gives Teresa Wright after the, the game in which, the game after they get married, where she says, a girl's got to breathe. Uh, it's a very chaste romance, but it is very. Um, but you can you can see there's a real sweetness and, chari- and 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 charisma between them. They they really bonded. She was about 18 years younger than he. She was only in a third movie, each of which she received Academy Award for. One, went one for three. She went for supporting actress of Ms., for Mrs. Miniver. But they had a real bond. You recognized it from her. She was kind of uh, maybe a little sarcastic from the time they, they met, when she dumped him Tanglefoot, which didn't really happen. Um, somebody else did that, but that whole kind of um, uh, joking way they had with each other is, a, is 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 evidence of how attracted they were to each other, and she was she was really Teresa Wright played Eleanor in half the way that Eleanor portrayed, viewed herself. Eleanor had a high opinion of herself, but she was, she was a tough broad. Uh, she told Teresa Wright that she loved the portrayal. But years later, 30 years later, when there's a TV movie on NBC with Edward Herman and Blythe Danner, she told Blythe, don't play me like a sweet thing like, uh, like, like Teresa Wright. I'm a, tough, I'm a tough cookie. So Blythe sort of cut it in half you saw her drinking. You saw her playing cards, but you, she was still a sweet person, and uh, and and uh, Eleanor liked that portrayal too.
0: <laughs> okay, so I'm glad to turn it over now. If anyone wants to lead it, lead it off, John. I'm just curious. It almost sounds like Goldwyn didn't know baseball, knew a
1: love story, very happy with Gary Cooper and. Was their love story true to life? Yeah. yeah, they 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 adored each other, but it was a different love story, to some degree, than what was portrayed. It was a marriage of a sophisticated woman and an unsophisticated man. There was a bit of an imbalance there. She introduced him to a wider world of reading, of opera, of museums, and what part of what you saw in the in the movie was accurate in that she she basically pulled him away from the life that he had with his mother. His mother, th- there's a scene in the movie where uh, Lou brings Eleanor back to meet his meet his mother. And you see the look of, I see it as both hatred and fear when Eleanor looks at the ring, uh, when M- Mother Garrick looks at the ring on Eleanor's finger. They, they, they did adore each other. There's no doubt about that. They had five really good years and two really bad years. Uh, but if you read her, really, much of the source we know of their relationship comes from Eleanor's book. Uh, I I believe that I believe that they had a great love story, uh, but she she had to work to get him to even be attracted to him, uh, to her. He was he was a mama's boy. He's very shy. That part is is true. Uh, is there any story uh, or uh, problems getting the old teammates? in the early years, and then, of course, in the end, Ruth and all the other guys. There a- well, the, the, there was no problem. Um, the, um, the sports agent, Christy Walsh, who first represented Ruth and then Gehrig and then Eleanor, was also doing publicity for Goldwyn, and he was the Yankee wrangler. Now, remember, Goldwyn did not want a lot of ex-Yankees in there. He didn't want a lot of baseball in there. At one point, he threatened to cut out almost all the baseball in the movie and cut Babe Ruth's part in half. So you had to have Babe Ruth in there. And you needed a sprinkling of others. So you, so you got Bill Dickey. Bill Dickey, did not want to, Bill Dickey had to be cajoled, not because he didn't want to honor Lou or do what Eleanor asked him to do, but he found it very hard to address anybody, an actor no less, as Lou. He just couldn't look at Gary Cooper and see Lou Gehrig. He came around and he was pretty good. Bob Musel was in there. Just a, a little bitty role. Buzz Dickey was there. Uh, there was one more Yankee in there. Lazari's wife priced himself out. She was asked. She she asked for too much money. Um, is it Wally Pipp? Wally Pipp wanted to be in there. Oh D- no, D- Dahlgren, um was very upset that he wasn't asked, and he threatened to go to the commissioner if they used his name, said let another actor play him. Let an actor play him. Uh, Dogrin's grandson tells me that um, he got some money out of that, but he didn't get a part. And d- the Dogrin, the actor who played Dogrin, just had you know, two words as he's passing Lou in the dugout as he goes out to replace him. Why wouldn't they let Dodger and Yves uh, play in the movie? Uh, again, they only needed a few Yankees. They just, you know, uh, all they all that they were generally needed to do, except for Dickie and, and Ruth, were to stand around during the luckiest man speech scene. So you can get a lot of actors and put them in uniform. So they're, they, uh, you know, Christy Walsh knowing that in, in even in November forty one Goldwyn exploded about there being too much baseball action or baseball people in an early version of the script, he wasn't going to allow for more than a few, a few ex-Yankees.
0: When you said Tanglefoot never really Tang
1: so, Tanglefoot happened not because um, Garrick fell over a bunch of bats that were laying out on the field, but the earliest reference to this is from the columnist Westbrook Pegler, who saw Garrig's early struggles with his footing at first base. He apparently had bad footwork that he practiced and practiced and got better at it. So, so. that
0: never happened to Donald or Carter, No. What else in the movie is Hollywood Libraries? A lot. You've got you to buy the book. Yes. There, yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> I'll put it this way.
1: Uh, as part of Paul Gallico's contract to write the early Script and the outline, he was required to tell Goldwyn how much of the scenes were real, how much were fiction, and how much were sort of based on something Eleanor told him. One third was real.
0: So you mentioned Fort Billy in the hospital. And was even promised <coughs> one or zero or two?
1: The, the scene with the kid with polio in the hospital I have no doubt that Garrick visited sick kids as, Ger- as 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 Ruth did, and Ruth more famously did it. There is no evidence. there's evidence of, of Ruth promising a kid a home run, at least anecdotal. There's nothing of, of Garrick. Yeah. In doing this. Could you speak a little louder? Oh. In doing this book. Yeah. And I know a lot has been written about Garrick that was just really away about Uh you know, I don't want to ruin too much of your surprise when you read the book, <laughs> but um, part of the stuff that Eleanor told Paul Gallico is very surprising. Lou was upset was paranoid about being blackmailed. Um, by fast women.
0: Uh,
1: the um that there was a period in Hartford when he was in the minor leagues where he went on a two-week drunken toot that was originally in an early script and there was a long